and those that are watching online. And uh, we want to welcome you guys, and I want to thank you for braving Snowmageddon. And uh, we're, we're super excited to be able to be here and, and study a chapter in Hebrews that a lot of people have question about. And so Hebrews 6, we'll be taking a look at that tonight. Well, let me open us up in prayer, and let's just pause before God and, and this week and, and lift up a few things. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessings that you've afforded to us. Lord, we would ask that, um, that this day, this evening, we would pause and reflect on your great grace. We would also realize, God, that you are greater than, than anything and everything. And at this moment, we're in the presence of the Almighty. And Holy Spirit, you may come and, and help us in a time of worship, a time of prayer and a time of praise. And Father, specifically, there's a member of our body that's having to have uh, an immediate surgery. Lord, I would pray that you would guide the surgeon's hands as they perform that procedure. Lord, there's a couple other people that are in the hospital that are not doing so well. Father, I would ask that your hand would be upon them, that you would comfort them. As they enter into that that time of having to decide um, what to do with these end of days that they have. There's a lot going on in our church family and body, God. We would pray that you would strengthen them and be with those that are weak and those that are downcast. Lift them up and that, God, we would know your presence in a mighty way. Lead us, Holy Spirit, this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.
call me found. You chase me down. You seek me out. How could I be lost when you have called me found? You chase me down. You seek me out. How could I be lost when you have called me found? Like a tidal wave crashing over me, rushing in to meet me here. Your love is fierce, like a hurricane that I can't escape, tearing through the atmosphere. Your love is fierce. Your love is fierce.
thank you that we can come together tonight and just take a break from the week and turn our eyes on you, God, and just forget about all the worldly things and just come into this house and open our heart and open our ears, God, and just focus on you for a while. Thank you for the opportunity you give us, God. Thank you for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, continue our study and our journey through God's Word, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 tonight. A couple of uh, other things that I forgot to mention. Um, we are looking at some more weather this weekend. And for those of you that are, uh, at least right now, planning on attending uh, the Celebration of Life for Rita Thomas, it's still on for Saturday, Lord willing, and the creek doesn't rise or freeze over. I don't know which one. But uh, that's going to be happening. But keep an eye on uh, the website and then also your emails for Sunday, for Sunday service. If we get all froze over, uh, we may bump that first service and just do one service at the, at the 1045 hour. It, it'll depend and see how, how quickly we warm up. And then lastly, if you were on the, uh, the group that was going to Israel, you should have already gotten a letter. And uh, today to let you know that we are postponing that trip to September 5th. Um, we are unable to get domestic flights actually out of the United States into Tel Aviv on March 4th. And so we have flights scheduled for September 5th. And then we'll, we'll do the tour then. We're waiting for a couple more little things that we got to do. If you didn't sign up to go on the tour and now you want to go on the tour... There, are, there is availability, so you can let me know. Uh, call the church office and let us know, and we'll get you plugged in to be able to do that. It's not too late to be able to, um, to adjust the schedule. You know, my pastor Chuck Smith once said, Blessed are the flexible, they won't be broken. <laughs> and that's what we want to be. It's flexible. We'll see what the Lord's going to do. Tonight we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. We've kind of slowed the pace down a little bit in our study because digesting Hebrews takes a little bit of time. There's a little bit of work to, to get involved with this. And, and we're really taking a look at Jesus as our high priest within this. Last week we introduced the ministry of Melchizedek, the high priesthood of Melchizedek in chapter 5. And it was a contrast between the Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek. And you're going, well, Carrie, what does that mean? Here's the background behind this. There was a group of Jewish Christians that were receiving this letter, and they were in danger of falling back into Judaism in abandoning the New Covenant faith and reverting back to the legalism and the liturgy within the Jewish construct and the Jewish faith that was there. Aaron was appointed high priest, and they were wanting to go back to that system. And as the writer of Hebrews was addressing this, he's saying... Look, there is so much better what you have right now compared to what we did have in the Old Covenant. The New Covenant relationship is so much better. Why would you ever want to go back? But it was hard to be a Christian during these days, especially a Jewish Christian. It was difficult. And it would be much easier just to kind of go back to the old lifestyle, to be able to settle in, to the comfort. You've got to keep in mind that Christianity was relatively new at this time. And so within that, there was a lot of pushback from the culture and the society. It seems like that hasn't changed too much in our days, has it? 
You can't hardly turn on the news without seeing the pushback against those of the Christian faith, but I think it's a different kind of pushback. It is the wanting to silence the witness of the church and silence the believer in the witness. But at this point in time, the Jews were really having a difficult time. And so what they were following after was going back to the Aaronic priesthood, um, the ceremonial washings and all of those different things. Because at least in that accepted faith system of Judaism, they could function within that. But yet God offers something that is better. And I think the challenge for us today as Gentiles is not falling back into a Jewish culture, but actually falling back into our old way of life. And there are times as a Christ follower when life gets hard, isn't it? And when fighting the spiritual battles become difficult and it can become so easy for us to settle in and just say, you know, I'm just going to have my, my relationship with God and keep it between me and God. And we're not going to we're not going to mention it publicly too much within this. The thing is, for these Jews, is they didn't understand and they had forgotten that Jesus had fulfilled the old covenant and he was the promise and to move forward. So the question is, why does a person leave something that is better, something that is good to go back to the old. Well, there's two things. One, it's easier. But the second thing is spiritual maturity. When you're spiritually immature, it's real easy to fall back into the comfortable. It's real easy just to, as we say, to sip on the milk and not put in the work. But in doing so, you kind of lose sight. We learned in chapter 5 that Jesus is the Son of God our great high priest, and that he's perfect. And that there is no one on earth that could ever touch him, nor is there anyone on earth that can ever bring us before the throne of God. There is no religious system that has access to the eternal, but through Jesus himself as a person. So many people are trying to find a system to make them feel good. We also studied last week that he's merciful. How merciful? He became human so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses and in every way be tempted, but yet not give in to sin. Why? So he would know our pain, our sorrow, and our suffering. And he's perfectly qualified to lead us in to that throne room of grace. Something that the Aaronic priesthood never could do. Could never bring anyone into, into the presence of God. They could only do it once a year, and we covered that through sacrifice. Tonight... We're going to take a look at the writer's appeal for maturity, to be able to grow up. And he's going to give them some commands. One, don't go backwards. Go forward. And a warning to those that are marginal believers, those that are sitting on the margins, and at the same time give confidence to the true believer that's there. For a true spiritual maturity to be able to grow in your faith and to understand that you have God's promises as an anchor of hope. Something that's going to keep you from being moved. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises. That's there. When life gets hard, and it will get hard. If anyone told you being a Christian is going to be easy, they lied to you. They lied to you. Being a Christ follower is hard. Growing in your faith is hard. There's an old saying, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. 
Your faith has to be tested. It will be tested. But your faith will stand the test and you will grow in that faith from level to level to level as you mature in that faith. And it's imperative that you mature in your faith. The trials that you go through today are setting you up to be successful in the trials that will come in the future. And then you're going to hit the next trial and you're going to, oh, I don't think I can manage that. But then you're going to look back and go, but I managed the previous ones. And they grow in intensity, but, but God doesn't throw everything at you all at once. He's kind. And Jesus leads us through. So we're going we're gonna to walk through this continuing conversation that the author is having with these people within this. Verses 1 through 12, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they have crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks of the rain which often falls on it brings forth vegetation useful for those who sa- for their, whose sake it is also tilled, receiving a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and this thistles, it's worthless and close up and be cursed and its ends to be burned up. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. And though we are speaking this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work of love, which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In this first section, it's imperative that we understand who the reader is speaking to in these sections. This is a case where you really, when you study the Bible, you've got to pay attention to the text. Because the text will give you clues of the insight. And the clues that you're going to look for is the use of pronouns. Because the writer is writing to two groups of people within this. He says, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation that we need to move forward. Now, everything from 5.11 all the way through chapter 6 is one kind of continuous conversation within this. And we got to understand in verses 1 through 3, he uses the pronouns we and us. And then in verses 4 through 8, he uses the pronouns those and them. And then in verses, he comes back to the we and you in verses 9 through 12. So what does that tell you he's, the author's doing? He's setting up a comparison. He's setting up a comparison and a contrast between two groups of people. When he says the we and the us, he's talking about the true believers. When he's talking about the you and them, he's talking about those that are apostatizing, that are falling away, or literally falling alongside. 
what's happening is the, the readers are listening to this and they're seeing what's going on and they're seeing this apostasy and these people falling away and they're questioning themselves and they're saying, well, maybe I should follow them out the door. And the writer is saying to them, no, don't follow them out the door. And there's two groups of people. It's the same thing that's true in the church. You know, not everybody that comes through these doors is a true Christian. Not everyone that walks into this church or maybe even has been attending the church for a period of time is a true believer, truly accepted the covenant relationship that God has for them. So even in the midst of the body of Christ today, there's a we and us and a those and them. Well, how do you determine which one is which? I want to know. I want to know which, who the those and them are. Well, the reality of the matter is, stay in your lane. Don't worry about the those and them, but don't follow the those and them. Find the assurance that, that the writer gives to us in the we and us. But he does give a description about the those and the them that are there. So in this, he's talking about the Jewish Christians that are there, and then the marginalized believer and within this. And what were they doing? Well, it, again, we got to say, in verse 6, he starts out with, therefore. Well, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, you have to go back and look at it. And he's talking about those that are mature or immature. The solid food is for the mature but in their practice. But there are also those that only want the milk, in verse 13, within this. And as we studied last week, there's a number of people that should be chewing on, on filet mignon. But they're only sucking on the bottle. I know people that have been naming the name of Christ as, as Lord and Savior for 30 years and they're still on the bottle. And that's sad. When you should be on the meat. The other thing that's interesting is this writer goes in. He says, yeah, there's two these groups. There's these people that... That all they know is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then there are others that are really going into the depth things, the deeper things of God. What he doesn't do, he says, for the sake of those that are on the milk, we're going to stick with just teaching the milk. We're going to get into the meat. But the ones that are on the milk, they're going to choke on it. They're going to have a hard time. So what should you do? In essence, what he says is, grow up. Get your teeth in and start getting into this, this growth of God's Word. He doesn't settle in. And I think it's a sad thing in, in the preaching ministry that we find today in churches that people are dumbing down the Word of God for the sake of the immature and then the mature are dying of malnutrition. We've got to go into the deeper things of God. Within this, and, and we're doing that, you know, women's ministry is doing that, the men's ministry is doing that. We had a great discussion this morning as we go through the book of Revelation. And the gals are doing that, and we do that in Hebrews. And so, here he's going to, next week, he's going to get into the, the conversation about Melchizedek. I can tell you this, there's a lot of Christians that choke on that, that have a hard time trying to work through it within this. And so the author says, I'm not backing down. In fact, he says, therefore, based on the fact that there are people that are, that are choking on the deeper things, we're leaving behind the elementary things. I want you to leave behind the elementary things. And I want you to grow up, press on to maturity. 
We need to challenge people. Our culture today is not pressing people on to maturity, is it? How many homes are sitting there with adult children that are 35 sitting on the couch playing video games? Mommy is still doing their laundry and feeding them and taking care of them. It wasn't too long ago that we were sending 18-year-olds out to war. And they were taking care of business. And we were giving them. In Israel, one of the amazing things when we go over to Israel and we talk with the commanders, they've got 24-year-olds that are in charge of the missile silos of the Iron Dome. Why? Because they tell them, you will grow up. Press on to maturity. We need to press on to maturity. Spiritual maturity. Our, our body of Christ has become weak and malnourished because we don't challenge people with the Word of God. We make it easy for them. Now that's not to give them so much that they, that they can't digest it, but it's to give it to them in such a way that they can digest it. He doesn't devalue the elementary things. We need the elementary things, don't we? We need to be able to know the basics. But what are the elementary things that we need to know? We need to know what sin is. We need to know what confession is. We need to know the elements of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. We need to know about baptism and to be baptized. But to be saved and to be baptized are the elementary things. And then after that, Jesus calls us to make disciples or learners. And so we need to encourage people and disciple people. I'm discipling three different people right now. And I encourage you to have a couple that you would do. I got one guy that is just amazing. And, and he is chewing on everything I serve up to him. He just can't get enough of it. To be able to be in that place. To be able to understand the Word of God. And with that, I would encourage you to, to be in that place, to be a discipler and to be discipled. And I'd applaud you all for, the, for joining us in this journey as we've been going through this, because this is a discipleship. We're going through the, the full account of God's Word. But repentance of sins, baptism, is elementary for all believers, and we've got to move beyond this. If I was to pick on somebody right now and ask you to recite to me all of the books of the Bible in order, could you do it? One of my first classes in seminary, I'm sorry, seminary, the professor, Dr. Kim, had everyone in the class stand up and recite the books of the Bible in order. And they stumbled through it. I knew it. Why did I know it? Because when I was teaching the kids downstairs, I taught them the Bible song. To be able to recite all the books of the Bible in order. To be able to do that. If I was to ask you to turn to first hesitations, would you find it? We need to know the Bible. We need to know God's Word. We need to grow and have a growing faith because of that. But the problem with these Jewish Christians is that they didn't want to continue in the context of the teaching of the disciples, the apostles, as they learned from Jesus, they wanted to go back to rote ritual that they had learned. Why? Because rote ritual does not require any thinking. The ritual tells you what to do, when to do. Stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. No. 
But it's that idea, you know, you, you, do what, you do what the rabbi or the priest says. He says, stand up, stand up, sit down, sit down. Kneel, kneel, recite this prayer, recite that prayer. It doesn't take any thinking. There's no theology in it. But you feel pretty good when you're done. Why? Because you did your religious thing. That's elementary, and it's empty within this. And he says, don't return to the empty ceremonial washing. Why? Because you've been baptized. Now, the Jews would wash ceremonially. They'd go into the mikvah, and they would wash regularly to, to be purified. But if Jesus had died and paid the price for your sins, and you've been washed in the blood, then why do you have to go through a mikvah? You don't. So don't return back to those things. So even in the elementary things, the Christian baptism far exceeds anything that the Jewish ceremonial washings would do. Repentance from dead works. You, why would you want to go back to animal sacrifice when Jesus paid the price for your sins once and for all? It doesn't make sense. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous will live by faith. What were they really wanting to do? They were not wanting to live by faith, but they were wanting to be justified by works. That is not acceptable. It is not going to help you grow. The righteous live by faith. And to grow in maturity means that you're living by faith. Is living by faith hard? Yes. Why? Because you have no part in anything that happens. You're trusting completely in God. You have a human responsibility to be connected with God and obey His Word, but the outcome is really dependent upon the sovereignty of God and the grace that He has afforded to us. So we need to press on maturity and don't go backwards. Okay, if I'm not going backwards, what should I do? Verse 3, go forward. Go forward. He says this, And this we will do if God permits. In other words, we're going to move forward if God permits. And he says, if God permits. And if God permits, the answer is what? Yes, he does permit it. Why? Because he called you to maturity. He called you to grow up. If you turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, I want to share with you about someone at the time that was terrified of backsliding into Judaism. His name was Paul where he, he never wanted to stop maturing. And so much so, he says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In other words, the just shall live by faith, and Paul keeps his body under subjection. Now, if you think about that, and I thought about that in light of the context of this, what did Paul really need to do? If he was a Jew above Jews... And he obeyed the law to the letter. And it was so ingrained in him in his upbringing. Not only would Paul have to keep his body under subjection when it, with regards to sin. But wouldn't it also have to be placed under subjection in self-righteousness and falling back into the law and rabbinical tradition? Absolutely. Paul would have to fight himself to keep from falling back into how he was trained in this train of thought to only walk by faith. To only 
follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Imagine you spend all of your life trained in a certain way of thinking. And you have to break out of that training into a new faith that is countercultural, where you're surrounded by Judaism all the time, and you'd have to push hard to not fall back, to not slip into it. Why? Because you've been afforded the responsibility to preach the gospel and the truth about the new covenant relationship with God. And if you fall back, then you become disqualified as that leader within that. We know this because there was a great contention that came between Paul and Peter when Peter slipped back, did he not? Within that. And Peter, when he was with the Jews, would eat like the Jews. And when he was with the Gentiles, he would eat like the Gentiles. And Paul said, I contended him to his face. Why? Because you're becoming disqualified. You're going back. And no one's going to trust you. You're, you're hypocritical within this. As a Christ follower today, again, we don't have Judaism to contend with. We have our old way of life. We have old man and old nature. And what would it be like if you fall back into your old life and people look at you and you go, see, you really didn't believe it, did you? Look at your life now. You really didn't believe this whole Jesus thing. Therefore, I'm not buying what you're selling. You see, that happens to us. If we fall back, if we slip back into that old way of life, we compromise. We become disqualified as a witness of the gospel. So we, we need to press on. We need to go forward. We need to follow Jesus and reject everything of the world. But the problem is, the, the Jews wanted to go back into the Old Testament. And they wanted to go back under that old covenant and revert back to Judaism. And it disqualifies that, them from being a witness within that. And they struggle with that. Then he goes on in verses 4 through 8, and he gives a very stern warning where the pronouns change within these marginal believers. Notice how he ends verse 3. He says, And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of, notice how he changes those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of God to come, and have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So what he does is he gives this dreadful warning to the apostates. Who are the apostates? It's not a we, us, it's those, them. The ones that abandon the faith. The difficulty of becoming an apostate, the trajectory of an apostate, is one that turns their back on God and walks away. That's an apostate, by definition. One who turns their back and they walk away from accepting Christ. It is impossible, humanly impossible, to get that person turned around. Why? Because instead of walking towards the cross, as they should be, they've turned their back on the cross and they're walking away from the cross. 
And it's near impossible to, for someone to come to faith as they're walking away from the cross. They just, I rejected it. I'm done with it. And rejecting that opportunity for salvation. Now, this is not talking about Christians who are born again by the Spirit of God that are Spirit-filled. Let me be clear. It is impossible for you to lose your salvation. You cannot, once you've been born again, be unborn again. You can't. It's impossible. It is a spiritual work that God does. And God is not going to unborn again you. So he's talking about a different group of people. So many people struggle over this passage, and I've heard it preached a number of different ways. See, you can lose your salvation. Those that have tasted and those that have seen and all of these different things. The person that is in a perpetual state of spiritually, spiritually rejecting Jesus, it's impossible for any of us to turn that person around within that. They, they are in this constant state of deliberate rejection and they're rejecting the very grace that would save them. So then, how do I become one of those people? Well, if you're born again, you don't have to worry about it. Hence the pronoun. Them, those, they. Because the writer's talking about this other class of people. We live in a public spiritual life. For those that have tasted and seen or experienced the power and the presence of God, but not fully transformed, when they backslide to empty religion, they fall back into their old pattern of way. And what they say is, I tried it, and I didn't like it. Really? Okay. Well, is there something that, that tells us? Yes. Jesus addresses this in the parable of the sowers and the seed. Do you remember the account in the parable? He says, a man went out to sow a field, and some seed fell on the hard path, some seed fell on the stony path, some seed fell on the thorny patch, and some seed fell on the good soil. The seed that fell on the, the, the flat path, that seed was never took root, was stolen by the birds of the air. The seed that fell on the rocky soil sprouted up, but quickly withered. Scorched by the sun. The seed that fell into the thorns and the thistles produced a plant, but it was soon choked out by the weeds. But the seed that fell in the good soil produced a thirty, sixty, and hundredfold. Now, when Jesus and the disciples said, Well, we don't get it, can you explain it to us? I said, Okay. I'll explain this one. The birds of the air, Satan who steals the seed, never takes root. The stony soil is that it doesn't have much death. It produces a plant, but no fruit, and dries up. The weedy soil, it produces a plant, no fruit. Cares and of the world choke it out. The seed that falls on the good soil produces fruit. When we look at the fruit, what is the fruit? Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. Within that. So you could have a plant 
But that doesn't matter. It's the fruit that is essential. Say, okay, Carrie, that's a great parable. What else proves this out? In context, who is the writer speaking to? Jewish Christians. Or, in this case, Jewish almost Christians. Jewish almost Christians. Have you ever seen anywhere in the Old Testament another almost blessed Jewish group? In Exodus, when Israel was taken out of Egypt, taken through the wilderness, they experienced the power and the presence and the miracles of God through the plagues and through the provision. They tasted of the manna. They tasted of the quail. They tasted of the water. They came to the edge of the promised land and the spies went in into the land and tasted of the milk and honey and fruit. And then they came out and they said, we can't go in. Why? Giants in the land. Lack of faith. God says, fine. You've tasted of the spiritual gift. You've tasted of these gifts, but you're not going to go in. Go out one more time around the mountain and we will go again with the next group. And so anyone that was 20 years of age and older died in the wilderness. These people that this author is writing to are those that would come to the, the edge of blessing. They were experiencing some of the benefits of the new covenant, even though internally they were not transformed by the Spirit of God. They were huddling with the other believers. They were watching and seeing things happen. Maybe even having some, some spiritual experiences, but never internally transformed and walking away. Again, this is not whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation. This is a marginal person is not going to experience the power and presence of God. They have to be fully committed within this. And so the writer is very clearly saying, those that have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away or literally apostatized, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since again they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Who were the ones that crucified Jesus and put Him to open shame? They were all of the Jews, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that saw the miracles of Jesus. There were the Jews that were there in the land that saw and experienced the miracles and the power of Jesus, but they rejected Him to the point of the cross and they crucified Him and put Him to open shame. And they said, crucify Him. Crucify Him. These are the same people on Palm Sunday earlier that said, what? Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And one week later, crucify him. 
crucify him. To the recipients of this letter, they would have known that. Now again, who is he writing to? Jewish Christians. What is he doing? Encouraging them that those that are walking away are in the same class of people as the wilderness people that got turned away from the promised land and the Jews that crucified Jesus and rejected Him. So Jewish Christian, you need to be encouraged and understand these are people just like those that yelled on that day, crucify Him. To crucify Him, to open and, and conduct Him in His open shame, to be able to reject Him. And we know what happened in 70 A.D., as a result of rejecting Messiah Jesus, Israel fell. The temple was burned within this. What is he saying then? Is he speaking to those that are walking away? No. This is a grave warning to the Christian Jews. They're crossing the line. Don't you cross the line. You can't change them, but you can watch yourself. Look for the fruit. Look at where you're at. Don't, don't give in to this idea that you can go back and everything's going to be okay. It's not. Because if you reject the cross, you're in the same class as those that are saying crucify Him. And if you're rejecting the cross to go back to the Old Testament law, you're putting everything that Jesus did on the cross to open shame. What you're saying is, Jesus, your death does not mean that much to me. The Levitical system and the ceremonial law, that means more to me than you, Jesus, dying on the cross for my sin. And for those people, it is a sad, sad day within that. And again, we, we see these biblical examples of those people that forsake that, that taste and they turn back. For example, in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, there's an example of a guy named Simon Magus. Do you know Simon Magus? He was the magician and, and he experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he saw that the power of the Holy Spirit was amazing, he wanted to do what? Buy it. Why? I want some of that. It's a moneymaker. In fact, in Acts 8, verses 18 and 19, it says this, And now when Simon saw that the Spirit bestowed upon him through the laying on the hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter judged him. You can read about it all in 20 to 24 of chapter 8, but look at 20 to 21. Specifically, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And Peter called him out. Now, Simon was freaking out at this point. <laughs> Please, no! But you can see how someone could taste of that, but not have a heart converted. And it is possible, in many cases, and I've seen it a lot, where people can taste of the blessing, 
but not be transformed by the blessing because they don't fully give their heart over to the Lord as Simon did. And so those people, they're in danger. We've got to understand that spiritual growth is a constant work. And everyone has that opportunity. So what the writer does is he gives us an agrarian, a farmer's, analogy in verses 7 and 8. Look at it. He says, For the ground that drinks of the rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it is also tilled, receive the blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and, and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and at the end of it is burned. Question. Does the same rain fall on the tilled soil and the untilled soil? Yes. Same source. What produces fruit? The tilled soil that has had all the thorns and the thistles removed. In other words, you work the land. Why? Because you want fruit out of it. You want produce out of it. But the lazy person that doesn't till the land, doesn't remove the thorns and thistles, will still get rain. But because they didn't do the good work, there's nothing that gets produced as a result of that. So when we take a look at this this example, what the writer is saying is, is you've got to do the work. You've got to get rid of the thorns and the thistles. And you pray the prayer, God, plow up my hardened heart. Again, back to the parable of the soils. It wasn't just a one-off. But the farmer had to do the work. But only the seed that fell on the good soil produced fruit. The rain or the Word of God will fall and, and it'll soften the soil. But the problem is that it only produces thorns and thistles. Why? Because you didn't do the work to pull out the thorns and the thistles. Maybe tonight you're realizing, wow, I got some weed pulling to do. I got some, I got some work to do. There's some thorns and some thistles. Maybe you'll look at somebody's life and you'll go, wow, why, are we, why am I not seeing any fruit? They're hearing the Word of God. Why am I not seeing any fruit? Look at the soil and look at the thorns and look at the thistles and the weeds that continue to choke out the Word of God. So what does that mean practically? What are the thorns and thistles in your life? The thorns and the thistles are anything that's going to get in the way of God's Word growing. It may be a job. It may be a hobby. It could never be fishing because I never could think that fishing would be a thorn in her thistle. Or hunting. But it could be. I, I know guys that say, you know what? I don't go to church on Sunday. My church is the outdoors. God created an outdoor church. I'm going to outdoor church. Great. When was the last time a tree helped you study the book of Hebrews? When the rocks start taking you verse by verse through Revelation, then we'll be okay with that. But your church, if it's the general, it's great outdoors, it's just general revelation. You're not going to grow by that. And you're definitely worshiping the wrong God within this. 
So he says, look at the ground and look at the outcome. You can tell the work of God based on fruit. If they're growing and producing spiritual fruit, good soil. If there's weeds and thistles, then help your brother or your sister pull the weeds. Plow it up. It often explains, and, I, and when I study, and you know, as a pastor for so many years now, I often get frustrated because you pour your life into somebody and watch them abandon the freight, the faith. And, and you're just like, what happened? And then you sit back and you look at the soil and you find out there were thorns, there were thistles, and there was no fruit. It was fake. But the writer goes back to the we and the us. Because it really is an encouragement to the believers. So don't get discouraged by what these people are doing. But be encouraged and have confidence. Notice verses 9 through 12. Have confidence. Notice what he says now. And he has to bring out this word beloved. Why? Because right now they're really bummed. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, know you're, I, I know you're worried. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things accompanying salvation that we are speaking this way. In other words, it's okay, you guys. I love you. You're okay. You're okay. We, we brought that out. We worked on it. Almost in an apologetic and encouraging way. He almost apologizes for having to speak so harshly. But it's truth within that. He says, for the things of salvation, and though we are speaking in this way, and God's not unjust so as to forget your work. In other words, God knows your work within this. God knows how you, how you live within this. And as a Jewish Christian, you can grow in your faith. And God knows the potential of your faith. He knows how you're growing. So you're okay. These works that accompany salvation. And God's not unjust to forget these works. Which you have shown note towards His name. Ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, perseverance. Don't give up. Like these other guys. You keep pushing on. Press on. It can e easily be discouraged when you see a mass exodus of people, isn't it? I know people today, pastors today, that are very discouraged. When the church attendance rate drops after COVID, it was not helpful. And, churches, and, and this mass exodus of people leaving the churches and, and their fellowships... And there, and I forget the number, but there's a great number of pastors that are actually quitting the ministry because of this discouragement. Pastorally, when you get to a place where you, you spend so much time studying God's Word and you're not seeing people change, or people you pour your life into and they leave, it's very easy to get discouraged within that. And the writer says, don't be discouraged. God knows the labor of your work. God's not unjust to forget your works. In fact, your works demonstrate your true faith. The fact that you continue to help and serve other people demonstrates your faith. James, the brother of Jesus, would write this in James chapter 2, 14-18. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but no works? 
Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, it's dead. Being by itself, but someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What does that look like practically? Well, Sunday morning we had a time of worship and we had communion and as is our practice we have a benevolent offering Sunday evening while we were here for a Bible study ministering we had a guy walk in from the street that needed a place to sleep the very resources that we were collecting in the morning were used that night to put somebody up in a hotel we didn't know this guy he just says I need a place we put him in now, what would it have been like for us to say, I'm sorry, we're busy. We're eating tacos. Come back later. No. The resources that God uses in us in being benevolent towards one another demonstrates that faith. Will we see him again? I don't know. But I know that there were three different people that ministered to him that night and speaking the word of God to him within that and acting in faith. And faith is that that process that believers come into the promises of God and experience the promises of God. You know what's super cool about faith is that, that in your maturity, when you have a little faith, God matches that with answer prayer and promise. Which encourages your faith to grow. And then you pray more and God answers that prayer with promise and blessing. And answers that prayer. And then it goes on and it continues to build and build. Well, what happens when it gets really bad? The writer says, don't give up. Why? Because your hope is in the end. Play the long game, not the short game. How do we know? Well, he uses Abraham as an example of someone who perseveres. God gave to Abraham a promise, right? I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you a great nation, a land seed blessing. You know, Abraham never saw that land. Did see his son. But he would have to offer up that son at God's request on Mount Moriah within that. Abraham, take your son, your one and only son. This son? Yeah, that son. Take him up to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham didn't withhold his son. And God blessed him and gave that promise to him. Abraham obeyed God's test and he was blessed. We think about that provision. And he believed God to the end. To what end? To the end that he had the knife hovering over the chest of his son. Where God had to stop him. He says, now I know. Because you didn't withhold anything from me. The assurance of God fulfilling his promise will take you to the end. How do I know that? This last year, in 2023, I had the privilege of ministering and witnessing a couple of, of patriarchs in this church that held on to hope of that eternal presence of God to their last breath and never wavered. We know that experience for many of the believers that have graduated to be with the Lord. Yeah, and it continues to amaze me when I, when I see 
these believers enter into God's presence with great grace. The hope that carried them forward was an anchor for their faith and they persevered to the end without giving up. That's what faith does. True faith fights apathy. True faith perseveres. True faith is not sluggish, nor it is immature. True faith is obedient to God's Word. And we learn all of this through trials. You say, Carrie, is there an easier way to learn? The answer is what? No. Why? A faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. Many years ago, our men in our men's group in Authentic Manhood learned this. Some of you guys will remember these saying, reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and invest in eternity. That was a mantra that, that for years we continued on. And we need to find people that are real faith followers. And I can tell you this, there's going to be times when you waver in your faith. When you are going to be shaken by your circumstances. Here's what you got to do. Instead of looking at the ones that are heading out the door, find the ones that are persevering and follow them. Find the ones that are not being moved. Instead of following the ones that are questioning God, follow the ones that are immovable in hope. I know a guy right now that is struggling with a tre- cancer treatment. And he's he, he just beginning it. But he's had two very good role models that he's been able to watch. And says, I want to I follow Jesus like them within that. Which leads to the maturity. In verses 13 to 20, he ends this section with this. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could not swear by no other greater. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and I surely will multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath, given in confirmation at the end of the very dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath. And so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of this hope set before us. The hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters into the veil where Jesus is entered in as a forerunner for us, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What does he say in this last section? Let hope be the anchor for you that allows you to enter into the presence of God with full confidence, just as Abraham did. In fact, it's a quote from Genesis 22:17, where it says, Indeed, I will great... This is God speaking. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gates of the enemies. And in Galatians 3.6 we read, Even so Abraham believed God and it was counted for him righteousness. 
Abraham, have a son. Why? Because I'm going to make a great nation. How? I'm old. Don't worry about that. I'll fix it for you. <laughs> well, my wife's old. Don't worry about that. I'll fix her for you. Make it happen. Well, God gave a promise. Abraham and Sarah, bless their hearts, had to act on that promise. I don't even want to imagine that conversation. But we know that Sarah laughed. We know all of these things that came through. But it was an anchor of hope. Why? Because of God's character. And what does this tell us? God's character says He cannot lie. Have you ever heard somebody that tried to convince you that they're telling the truth? And then I swear. I swear on my children. I swear on my mom. I swear on my dog. I, I swear to God. Well, why are you swearing so much? Because I need something higher than myself so that you'll believe me. But there's no one higher than God. So what does God do? He says, I swear to myself. There's no one higher than me. It's an unchangeable thing. God cannot lie. What does that mean? That means every word that proceeds from the mouth of God via the Holy Spirit in the Word is a truth. When Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Truth or lie? Truth. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. When I come back, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be with me also. Truth or lie? Truth. We look at all of the things that God says, and they are all truths. And He promises to bless us. We need to guard ourselves, though, against oaths. And in Matthew 5, 37 says, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's a very great city of the King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white, although my kids did that to me, or black, unless you got, like, hair dye. But let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no, beyond that is evil. We don't trust God because we've learned not to trust people. But I can tell you this, God is not people. God is God. So if God said it, believe it, and that settles it within that. God will always be faithful to His promise. What is the greatest promise that God has given to you? Greatest promise. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth of confession, resulting in salvation. What is the, the greatest promise? Eternal life. That comes from confession, repentance, and faith. And how do we know that? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He sent His Son. Verses 19 to 20 tells us that we have this anchor, this hope. And it's not based on an empty promise. How do we know we can trust God? Because He gave us Jesus. God is not some ethereal spiritual being that's floating out in the never-never lands. But He gave us His Son to die on the cross for our sin. And the Son gave us the Holy Spirit as the down payment unto our salvation. Who was present with us. 
who has transformed our life. We don't hope in hope for the sake of hope, but we hope in the solid Word of God that's a foundation for our lives. And Jesus, the great High Priest, is now the forerunner that is in the presence of the throne of God. Why would you ever want to go back to something that was so limited like the old life and the old law? I want to leave you with this, and Mark and Jessica come up to be able to lead us. I want you to listen to the words of this old hymn. This is a hymn that was written by a guy by the name of Edward Mote. Some of you may know him. He lived in uh, the late or the early 1800s. If you were either around at that time, yeah. He actually wrote this hymn in 1834. But the story behind this hymn, I think, is is interesting. As Edward Mote was walking to work one day in 1834, the thought popped into his head to write a hymn on. Quote, the gracious experience of a Christian, end quote. And as he walked up the road, he had the chorus, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. By the end of the day, he had the first four verses written out and safely tucked away in his pocket. Later that week, he visited his friend, whose wife was very ill, And as they couldn't find a hymnal to sing from, he dug up his newly written verses and sang those with the couple. The wife enjoyed them so much, she asked for a copy. Moat went home to finish the last two verses, sent it off to a publisher saying, As these verses so met the dying woman's case, my attention to them was the more arrested, and I had a thousand printed for distribution. The Holy Spirit moved on his heart to write this hymn. Later that week, it was used to bring comfort to a dying woman. These are the words of this song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. And the chorus, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. God, we thank You that You have provided us an anchor of hope. His name is Jesus. That anchor of hope stands now beyond the veil in Your presence. May we never return to those things of the world that were empty and and worthless in in changing our lives. May we lean on You, our only hope, and our solid rock. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.
to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. God, we thank you that you have provided a place for us to run to the cross, to be able to lay our cares and burdens down. You've taken them up. You've given us a place of assurance that you, Lord Jesus, we find our life in you. As we walk out in this world, may we not be discouraged by the things that are going on, but be encouraged by the things that you have given to us to look forward to. Eternal life and that much more. May we bring that encouragement to others. And may we be led to the cross by your Spirit and lead others to that same place. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. And make a snowman. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. 
Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. 